Amen. Maybe hard for you to imagine what it's like to preach week in and week out. You might have an idea of what this is like, but I promise you until you've done it, you don't know what it's like. (laughs) And it might be hard for you to imagine what goes on in a pastor's heart when it comes to a passage in Scripture like this. We're coming to a peak in the book of Mark. And as a pastor who is given the opportunity by God to preach this passage, there's two thoughts that come to mind. The first one is, genuinely, what a blessing that God would grant someone an opportunity to proclaim from this passage of Scripture. This is some glorious territory in the Scriptures that God has inspired And it is a true blessing. But the second thing that comes to mind is what a tremendous responsibility. Because we don't handle this kind of scripture. We don't handle any kind of scripture, but especially this kind of scripture trivially and tritely. This is lofty territory. And I stand before you this morning fully appreciating the blessing that it is to be able to stand before us and proclaim this. But I also stand understanding the responsibility. I I want you to know it's been a very hard week for me this last week. Number of fronts. We all have weeks like this. That's why I'm sharing it. You have hard weeks too. I'm not unique. And I share that with you to say that as I endured through different trials and tribulations this week, I got through it because I said, Yeah, but if the Lord wills it, I get to stand in a pulpit on Sunday and proclaim this passage. That's how tremendous this passage of Scripture is. And it sustained me. The truth of this passage sustained me through a tough week. And I often said, Lord, would you just get me to Sunday morning at about 1040 in a pulpit and some people. Would you just get me there? And he was faithful to do it. And now I've really set your expectations high for a good sermon, haven't I? And you're going to get one. Because I'm only going to proclaim the truth from the Bible. So let's look at this passage. It's Mark chapter 8. And we're coming up to, and we are upon the the peak. The As I said last week, many people call this the continental divide of the gospel of Mark. This is in the geographic center of the book. If you look, there's 16 chapters. We're at the end of chapter 8. Chapter 16 is a short one. So we're at the geographic, physical center. But we are also at the context center, the content center, the, the center of the theme of the book of Mark. And it's more than that. We're at the center of the theme of the entire Bible with the passage that we're going to preach and apply this morning to our lives. So this is, this is lofty territory, and I hope you're ready, and, and I hope you understand that it's also going to be simple territory because it's lofty and the altitude is high and the air is thin up here. It is also extremely simple to grasp what takes place in these passages. 
you know, we get this pinnacle four times. And, and I've surveyed the four gospels that we were given. In Matthew chapter 16, we get this moment. In Luke chapter 9, we get this moment. And, and I think that this moment is given to us in John chapter 1. We get this right out of the gate in John, where we are declaring boldly and certainly that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. In Mark chapter 1, we're, we're introduced to a title, the very first lines of the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're, we're going to see the word, the term, the title, Christ, for the second time in this Gospel, right here in these passages. And so, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, picking up in verse 27, and I'm going to read because we're going to preach through verse 32, the first sentence of verse 32 this morning. Here's what Mark was inspired to write. And Jesus went on with his disciples. He's just healed the blind man in Bethsaida. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. <laughs> and others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Father, we have a plain, bold proclamation here before us this morning. And we have been brought to your place of worship. We have been joined together to worship you as a family around a question. The most important question we will ever be called to give an answer to. Lord, ask us this morning this question and give us the right answer and the heart behind it as we utter it to you. And I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have here before us one question. Now, this question is posed to two audiences. And this question has a variety of answers. The first audience uh, is other people. Now, Jesus is in a dialogue with the disciples. But he asks these disciples, who do people say that I am? We're going to go right to that question. There's some much to be said about this area of Caesarea Philippi. I cannot wait to gather with you tonight. We're going to do the first part of 27 tonight. There's some fascinating truths that are going on in their way to Caesarea Philippi and what's going on in that region. We will do that tonight. I want to jump right in to Jesus's question to these disciples. And the first one is, who do people say that I am? 
Very important question. Who does the world say that Jesus Christ is? It's a deep, deep question. Notice what Jesus does not ask. He does not ask, who do people say that what I do? When I meet people in the world and you meet people in the world, it's often, hi, Doug Berry, nice to meet you. What do you do? Well, I'm a vet. That's how our conversations go. But it'd be a little weird if I said, hey, Doug, tell me, who are you? It's a little different, isn't it? There, there's some depth to this question. Who do people say that I am? Not what do they say that I do. And the response that these disciples give Uh, It's threefold. There's some people that the disciples say declare Jesus to be John the Baptist. Now, that would be appropriate for a Jewish person or a Gentile person to answer on that question. Uh, Because many Jews and Gentiles saw John the Baptist in action because this is around the time that John the Baptist lived. It's not long after John the Baptist was beheaded. In fact, Herod beheaded John the Baptist, if you remember that passage. Herod is a Gentile, and Herod even believed that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. So the disciples say, many people say that you are John the Baptist. There's a second group of people that declare that this must be Elijah. That's probably only a Gentile audience. I mean, I'm sorry, a Jewish audience. The Gentiles are not carrying around the Old Testament. They don't know of Elijah lived thousands of years or hundreds of years before this. This is probably a Jewish answer. And and Elijah was one who was highly revered and greatly regarded in Jewish history. Why? Elijah never died, it seems, from Scripture. He was carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So you can see how some might declare that Jesus could be Elijah. Then there's these others that declare that Jesus just might very well be one of the prophets. Matthew, if you look at Matthew's version of this passage, he he inserts in there Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Luke adds one of the prophets raised from the dead. And so from that, it's just very interesting to note that these people think that he's either John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets, it's very interesting that they are willing to say that he is a dead man that has come back to life. Very willing to acknowledge the supernatural miraculous. But they are unwilling to acknowledge that he is God in the flesh. Why can't they get this right? We'll see in just a moment when we look at Matthew's version of this. Now, any man would be honored to be called John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Any Jewish man of that day and age would go, wow, what a compliment that you would label me as such. No, not with Jesus Christ, right? This is God in the flesh. And to be even told you are thought of as John the Baptist or Elijah is such a downgrade from who he really and truly is. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The Word that became flesh 
the author and perfecter of faith, the creator of all things and sustainer of all things. And so it is not right, it is not even a compliment to say of Jesus Christ that he is maybe John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. So to this point, Jesus asks a question. And these disciples give an answer. And I would say to you this morning, that's a pretty easy question. Who do people say that Jesus is? But Jesus ramps up the intensity here real quick. Because his next question is this, verse 29. But who do you say that I am? First question might have been a warm-up. The second question requires a crash helmet and a chin strap. Who do you say that I am? This is the biggest question that will ever be posed to the disciples. And now it would be right for you and I to inject ourselves into this passage and understand very clearly that this is the biggest question that will ever be asked of you and me. And this is a question that is coming our way this morning in this text. And this is a question that will be coming our way in the end times when Christ comes again. Who do you say that Jesus is? And I'm going to tell you this morning that the answer to this question must be exactly, precisely correct. Because all of eternity is hanging in the balance as an answer to this question is uttered across our teeth and mouth. After all the teaching that these disciples have witnessed with Jesus, and after all the teaching that we have looked into in these eight chapters in Mark, and after all the miracles that these disciples have seen Jesus perform, and after all the miracles that we have read of and studied and applied, and after living with Jesus for, I don't know, some maybe two years, and this is our 28th sermon in Mark. It's not two years, but we've been in here for a while now. After all that time in witnessing all this teaching and miracles, what will they say? What will you say after being halfway through the book of Mark? What will you say to the question, who is Jesus? This question comes right at you and me this morning as we read these verses. Really and truly, I need you to pause for a moment as I did this week and say, how would I answer that question? Who is Jesus? Teenagers, you have to have an answer to this question, and there's only one. And you don't need to postpone answering the question. This is meeting you right now in 2016, and you must know the answer to this question. You need to know the answer to this question when you go to Philadelphia this summer. You need to know this question in Decatur in a couple of weeks. Because somebody might just very well ask you, who is Jesus? And I promise you one day, Jesus is going to ask you, who do you say that I am? And you're blessed to be at your age 
sitting in a place like this, in a moment like this, being asked this question. Moms and dads, you've got to know the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Businessmen, businesswomen, teachers, coaches. There's not a person in this room that doesn't need to know the answer to this question. And there's only one answer. It's not a couple. It's not the answer of your choice. There's only one answer. Look at this. Peter, wow. Peter answers big and bold. There's no warm-up. There's no stuttering and stammering. We don't see evidence of the disciples huddling up and saying, what do you want to say? What's the best answer? Okay, we got a few seconds. What is it? Peter, as we have seen often when we work through the the disciples, we did a biography of the disciples last summer. Peter often is the spokesman for the twelve. He's the bold one. Sometimes he's got his foot in his mouth. Sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's walking on water. Sometimes he's sinking. Here in a moment of clarity, he's got clear vision. It's not blurry. It's going to get blurry in next week. But here it's clear and vivid. He responds, you are the Christ. Some of the greatest words ever uttered. I could preach just on that phrase. You are the Christ. That would be sufficient for weeks of sermons. And he uttered it. On the spot. Not John the Baptist. Much bigger than John the Baptist. The Christ. Not Elijah, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. The Christ. You are Him. Christ is not a name. It's not His last name. I don't think you think that. Some do. Jesus Christ, Edward Heinze. No, it's not His last name. He's Jesus the Christ. Big difference. It's a title. The Christ. Listen to what Peter says in the different gospel accounts here in Mark. It's you are the Christ. In Matthew 16, you are the Christ, comma, the son of the living God. And in Luke, he says, you are the Christ of God. Christ is not a name, it's a title. It's a Greek word. It is Christos. In Greek, and it's just a carryover. It comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. So Messiah in the Old Testament language, Christ in the New Testament language, they are one and the same. What does this title mean? Two definitions. Number one, Christ or Messiah means promised one. Christ means promised one. We are promised one throughout all the Old Testament. We do this often, but we've been in Genesis 3.15 before, and there is an offspring from the woman that is promised by God who will crush the head of the serpent after being struck on the heel. That is an offspring that is promised early on in our Scriptures. 
Then we go all the way to Malachi. Malachi 3, 1 through 4, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist, by the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's at the end of the Old Testament. And here Jesus goes to his disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You're that one. The promised one. The Christ of God. That's who you are. Jesus in the Matthew account says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven made this known to you. So the second thing that Christ or Messiah means is anointed one. So he's the promised one. He is the anointed one. If you look into the Old Testament scriptures and these Jewish disciples knew their Old Testament scriptures, the anointed ones in the Old Testament were three people that carried three offices with three titles. Prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus, as the Christ is a prophet, but he's more than that. He's also a priest, but he's more than that. He's also a king. So I want you to do some Bible work with me this morning. We need to look at these three offices and we need to see how Jesus Christ fulfills these three offices to perfection. So first, let's take prophet. A prophet is one who speaks the word of God to God's people. That's what a prophet does. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, don't turn to that one. I want you to be turning to John 17 while I read this to you. Go to John 17, verse 6. But in Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 18, Moses says, On behalf of God, I will rise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And whomever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there is a prophet that is promised in Deuteronomy 18 that's going to come and he's going to be greater than Moses and he is going to speak the word of God to God's people. And woe to those people that do not take heed to the words that this coming promised prophet, anointed one, will speak. Well, John 17, starting in verse 6, I think is a great fulfilling passage of that Deuteronomy 18. Look at it. Verse 6. I have manifested. This is Jesus praying to God the Father in the garden before he's betrayed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's a prophet. I've made your name known. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is the anointed one, the promised one that would come from Deuteronomy 18's promise. In John 17, 6 through 8, mission accomplished. Peter says, You're that one. You're the Christ, the anointed one that was promised by Moses in in Deuteronomy 18. 18. And Jesus in John 17, 6 says, yes, 
I am. That's who he is. So I'm going to ask you this morning, who is Jesus? Can you say he's the Christ? He is the promised one. He is the anointed one that is the word of God to me. That's who he is. You must say that with your mouth, through your head, from your heart. Now be careful. Because Judas Iscariot was among the twelve that Peter represented when he said, you are the Christ. Judas Iscariot did not say that from his heart. Be careful. We've got to believe this in our hearts. And then it comes from there through our mouths. How about the second one? The priest. A priest is one who goes before God on behalf of people to make people right with God because they've wronged God with sin. In the Old Testament, it's a bloody Old Testament. Blood everywhere. Animal sacrificed everywhere. And a priest carrying sacrifices to God on behalf of people. One man did it. The high priest. Day of Atonement. We read of the first of these one men. His name was Aaron. Moses was the first prophet in in the context that we're talking about. Aaron is the first priest. In Exodus 28 reads, So Aaron shall bear the names of the son of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So Aaron's got a breastpiece on. It's got the names on. It's got the names of the people on that, the tribes, and he brings before God remembrance of God's people. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And man, it happened like clockwork throughout the Old Testament. Priest representing people before God because of sin. Go to Hebrews 7. I'll have you look with me in the New Testament passages. Hebrews 7.23. The writer of Hebrews writes this. The former priests were many in number, starting with Aaron, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus... He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of his people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Insert on a cross. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath 
which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the promised one, the perfect high priest that puts an end to all the priesthood of man. And he lives forever and he stands before God the Father on our behalf, even right now in a resurrected body, making intercession and saying, Father, I died for them. Father, it was my blood for them. Father, I rose from the dead for them. So therefore, render them clean and righteous and pure in my name. And our Father in heaven says, done. I promised him for that. And he has done that. And he is my priest in addition to my prophet Peter says you're that one Jesus says yes I am how about king the third one a king is one that's appointed to rule over the people of God and to act and function as God's representative to the people to rule them. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He's promised right there in Jeremiah 23. And Peter says, You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. That king that was promised from long ago. Matthew 28, you know this passage well. It's the Great Commission passage. You probably don't need to look there. But Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority. Authority is given to a king, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's king language. Peter says you're that one, that anointed one, that promised one, the Christ. And Jesus in Matthew 28, in an audience that included Peter, says, yes, I am. So Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And this morning, it is my duty My privilege to say to you, you must join me and you must encourage me because there's times that I struggle in doing this. We must encourage one another to say Jesus Christ is the prophet of God, is the priest of God, and is the king that God promised to us. And he must be to us God's spokesman, God's sacrificial atoning actor, and God's ruler in our life. He must be the Christ to us. He can't merely be Elijah or John the Baptist. They were forerunners that pointed us, but now we have the Christ. Jesus Christ, as the anointed one, fulfills each of these offices 
to perfection forever. That must be your answer. And I have prayed this week that we as a people together would be able to say to one another and to the Lord, Jesus is the Christ in my life and in yours. Verse 30 says something that we've heard before. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Again, why would Jesus want this to be a secret? Best explanation I find in the whole book of John. Over and over again, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. There are people at this point that want to raise him up as a a manly, worldly, kingly ruler. And Jesus came to be a king who dies for his people. And he battles for his people by taking the sting of death and the punishment for sin away from people. And he conquers through a resurrection. But he is not a warrior king at this point in history. And the people wanted him to be such. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the high priests... They all are waiting for a Messiah that's going to be on a white horse with a sword, swinging it and conquering people, and the blood in the streets is going to be knee-deep. And they don't understand that that's a future truth. But he had to first come as a suffering servant. And so these people are wanting to expedite him to what they think kingship should look like. And he says, don't tell anyone. I'm strict on this. Don't go public with this yet. It's going to be public at the right moment. But until then, you're walking with me in this. So then we we go to verse 31. And it must be preached together with these verses 27 through 30. Because we read here, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again so jesus here asks the question who do you say that i am the correct answer is you are the christ and now jesus says yes and let me teach you what that means and he shifts into you've made a correct statement i want to teach and make sure that you know what you just said and what it means And he says it means four things. And we're going to really unpack this next week. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here this morning. But he says it means that I must suffer many things. I, Jesus, he, Jesus, will be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. It means he will be killed. And it means after three days. He will rise again. And I point you back to the sign of Jonah. After three days, the sign of Jonah will happen. Something greater than Jonah is here. It is me. I will rise again from the dead. Now, I want to read. Turn to Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, we have a promised one 
a Messiah, a Christ that is promised over in Isaiah 52 that speaks to this suffering many things, being rejected and being killed and rising again. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. I want us to read this together as a people this morning. And we're going to let the Bible just preach to us. I'm not even going to comment on this. But this is the promised one. This is the anointed one. This is the Christ, the Messiah that we're reading about. Starting in 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He is the Christ. Jesus is this one that was promised long ago in the book of Isaiah. And Peter got it. And it is my prayer that every one of us 
within earshot of these words, would get it. He is this one in Isaiah with certainty. No doubt about it. Do you believe? You needed to come and hear this this morning. You need to hear this every day. And you can by opening this and reading it. Notice the certainty back in Mark of Jesus' words. Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things. Must. Jesus, it says in verse 31, He began to teach them this truth. He taught them and He's teaching you and me that He must suffer many things. And Isaiah 52 and 53 says He will and He would. In the latter parts of this Gospel of Mark, we will see that the many and the must happen just as Jesus said here and just as Isaiah was inspired to record the Word of God. If this doesn't happen, suffering many things, if this doesn't happen, being rejected by the elders and the priests, if this doesn't happen, he is to be killed. If this doesn't happen, he is to be risen from the dead on the third day. If those things do not happen, he is not the Christ. He's not. Christ is a title. It's a title of what Jesus will do. He will fulfill the promise that there will be a substitute who will die in your place for your sins, even though he knew none himself. And if he isn't rejected, and if he doesn't die, and if he isn't buried, and if he doesn't rise on the third day, he's not the Christ. And Peter's a liar. This is the center of Christianity. This is the center of everything in the Bible. Jesus is the Christ. He was promised. He was anointed. And He fulfilled all that was designed by God the Father for Him to accomplish. We will see more of that next Sunday. And we're going to go all the way down through the end of chapter 8 next Sunday because it's got implications for you and me. As followers of him. But suffice it to say this morning. He is the Christ. And he is the Christ because he did what he was commissioned by God. Anointed by God to do. Now look at the final thing that I will say this morning. First little sentence in verse 32. And he said this plainly. (laughs) We have a good God. He's not tricky. He's not hiding things from us. He's plain. He understands that we're plain people. And Jesus said very matter-of-factly, very boldly, very certainly that I must suffer many things. 
so that I can be the Christ that you proclaim me to be. So it's not disguised, it's not complicated, there's not a formula here that you have got to get. Jesus speaks with bold certainty. And the truth is, quite tragically, we're the ones that make it complicated. And we make it complicated by refusing to have faith. It requires faith to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there are times that we are like these disciples who were worried about only one loaf in the boat just momentarily ago in this passage. And we've got the bread maker in the boat with us. And last Sunday we saw a man that's blind and he had to go through two stages of healing, not because Jesus was weak, but because his faith was weak. Through the eyes of faith, we take what Jesus said plainly and we embrace it as the words of our life. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew, Jesus responds to Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, with blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You need to understand this morning that understanding this and professing this from your heart requires an act of God. God must breathe life into your nostrils. He must breathe life into your faith and must grant you the faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's not going to come from flesh and blood. This is not going to come because of human intellect. This is not going to come due to socioeconomic status and how much money you make or don't make. This is not going to come to you from genetics. This is not going to come to you from the culture that you've grown up in. This is going to come as a blessing from Jesus' Father who is in heaven. And I ask you this morning, I urge you this morning to pray to that Father, would you give me the faith to utter the words, Jesus is the Christ. And I absolutely believe that if you genuinely ask God to give you the faith to utter from your heart those words, I genuinely believe that God will say, yes. We do not worship a God that will say, nope, not going to do it. (laughs) That is not the God of the Bible. The uttering of the prayer, God, would you give me that faith, is a gift from God to pray to him so that he would give you the gift of the faith that he gifted you in asking for. Pray that from your heart today, genuinely, worshipfully. And the God of the Bible will say yes, because he will give you what you ask for if you ask for it. So God has revealed to us a great truth this morning. His son, Jesus, is the Christ. And and here's how he revealed it. He revealed it by sending Jesus some 2,000 years ago. That began his revelation. Actually, it began when he promised him in the Old Testament. But then he actually sends him. And then he had Mark write this in the Scriptures so that we today in 2016 can read this. And then he... Then he reveals this truth to you by granting you belief 
as a result of reading, as a result of Mark writing what truly happened in history, as a result of it being promised long before it actually happened. He's a good God. He's a big God. He's a God worthy of your worship this morning. So, what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Your answer to this question has your eternity in the balance. Get this question right, you're with him forever. Get this question wrong, there's a real place called hell that does last forever and ever and ever. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in utter darkness without end. It's real. Jesus speaks of it often. So you cannot merely answer this question with your head. You must answer this question from your heart. And you will know if it's from your heart if your words and your thoughts and your actions match the answer that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us to February 14th, 2016, that we can hear the truth from your word that Jesus, your Son, is the Christ. Would you cause all of these people including me, to believe that without wavering? And would you use that truth that Jesus is the Christ to carry us through any circumstances we find ourselves in because those words have eternal implications. And I pray this in the name of the Christ, Jesus himself. Amen.